You're listening to Deep Breaths, updates from Chest on ReachMD. This series is produced in partnership with the American College of Chest Physicians and is sponsored by InsMed Incorporated. Here's your host, Dr. Tim Axiomet. The prevalence of non-tuberculous mycobacterial or NTM lung disease in the United States has almost doubled from 68 to 11.7 per 100,000 persons from 2008 to 2015. Since the symptoms of NTM lung disease are nonspecific and similar to other lung diseases like COPD, bronchitis, and bronchiectasis, the diagnosis is often delayed. So how can we keep NTM lung disease at the forefront of our minds when evaluating patients? Welcome to Deep Breaths, updates from chest on ReachMD. I'm Dr. Tim Axamit, and joining me on this podcast are pulmonary nurse practitioner Amy Levenger from NYU Lagone Health and Dr. David Griffith, professor of medicine at National Jewish Health in Denver, Colorado. Ms. Levenger, Dr. Griffith, welcome to you both. Thank you so much for having me here today. Thank you, Tim. Okay, then, let's start with you, Dr. Griffith. Since MAC infections are the most common of the NTM lung infections, what are the clinical, microbiologic, and radiographic criteria needed to establish the diagnosis of MAC lung disease? Well, there are three criteria required for establishing a diagnosis of MAC lung disease. The first, of course, is symptoms. Patients should have compatible symptoms for MAC lung disease. The microbiologic criterion involves evaluation of respiratory specimens, usually sputum. We prefer spontaneous sputum. If that's not available, then sputum induction is the next choice. And for, I I would say, a small percentage of patients, bronchoscopy might be necessary to obtain respiratory specimens for acid-fast bacilli, or AFB, smear, and, and culture. But the diagnosis cannot be made without uh, meeting the microbiologic criterion. I would say also that the ATS criteria require only one positive bronchoscopic specimen, and I think that's a weak part of the diagnostic criteria. I certainly would try very hard to, to get either spontaneous or induced sputum from patients. Radiographically, patients also need to meet criteria for changes compatible with MAC lung disease that can occur with chest radiographs that frequently requires chest CT scannings. When the cultures are returned, usually they're accompanied by in vitro drug susceptibility testing results. And I I want to emphasize that there are only two antibiotics for which those drug susceptibility test results are meaningful, and that is for macrolide and amikacin. That's a point that gets made over and over again, but Unfortunately, it, uh, somehow it doesn't seem to, to sink in. And frequently, on first or second encounter, it's not clear whether someone has established disease or whether that disease is going to be progressive. So I would emphasize that longitudinal follow-up is absolutely essential for these patients. That is not the case for patients with cavitary disease, where once the microbiologic criterion is met, then treatment needs to be started. Thanks for those thoughts, Dr. Griffith. Can you share what's been the most difficult of these criteria to establish an NTM diagnosis? 
Really, it's the longitudinal follow-up. We frequently meet patients who meet all the criteria but have relatively mild symptoms. They invariably have bronchiectasis. When they begin bronchiectasis therapy, they have symptomatic improvement. And we follow those patients and do not see evidence of radiographic progression. So I, I would say that there's patience and persistence that are necessary uh, frequently for establishing a diagnosis in our nodular bronchiectatic patients. Then turning to you, Ms. Levenger, who should be evaluated for MAC lung disease? We do know that there are certain underlying conditions that make people more susceptible to MAC lung disease. These include having prior lung infections as well as bronchiectasis, COPD, and genetic diseases such as cystic fibrosis, alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, and primary ciliary dyskinesia. In order to evaluate for the MAC lung disease, having that chest CT scan is an important diagnostic tool as it will provide a detailed look at the extent and location of diseases. It is important to differentiate if there are nodular findings on the scan versus the fibrocavitary findings on um, the exam. And I know that Dave touched on this, but it is important to not delay initiation of therapy for patients with fibrocavitary MAC lung disease. And Ms. Levenger, can you comment on what the, your experience of patient response is when you're able to establish a diagnosis of MAC lung disease, sometimes after a very prolonged delay? Usually when it's after a very prolonged delay, our patients are relieved um, that they finally have answers and they're encouraged when we do tell them information about MAC and ways that we can treat them and that this is treatable and we hope um, that they can live a quality of life. Excellent. Uh, And Dr. Griffith, could you elaborate further on the evaluation of patients who are immunocompetent, that is non-HIV, versus immunocompromised patients with NTM lung disease? Well, in terms of presentation and therapy, there's actually remarkably little difference uh, in the management uh, of patients. As Amy previously pointed out, uh, what's important is identifying those patients who have underlying conditions which do alter the immune system and put patients at risk for MAC lung disease. But in terms of diagnosis and radiographic presentation and therapy, generally there's there's not a lot of, of difference. I think it's also, uh, again, in communicating with patients, it's very important to point out that most of our patients who have nodular bronchiectatic and even cavitary MAC lung disease do not have significant or, or systemic immunocompromise. I think there is uh, conventional wisdom out there, which comes from uh, the role of MAC and HIV infection, that patients must be immunocompromised if they're infected with MAC, whereas fortunately that's not the case for the vast majority of these patients. And I'd like to tackle yet another confusing aspect of MAC lung disease. Knowing who we should evaluate Dr. Griffith for MAC lung disease, can you share with us or help us understand and differentiate between MAC lung disease, refractory MAC lung disease, and macrolide or amikacin drug-resistant MAC lung disease? Well, it's an extraordinarily important question. Once patients are begun on therapy, we hope that they have conversion of their sputum to AFD culture negative within six months. Somewhat arbitrarily, if a patient does not have uh, sputum conversion in that time, 
we refer to them as refractory MAC lung disease. The most important reason that that might occur would be the emergence of macrolide resistance for a patient who's receiving standard macrolide-based therapy. Most patients are not initially started on amikacin therapy. So if someone is not on amikacin but is on macrolide-based therapy, their cultures are still positive at six months, the initial evaluation must include repeat macrolide in vitro susceptibility testing. Uh, certainly, if the patient has received amikacin either perinerally or by inhalation, it would be absolutely equally important to evaluate in vitro amikacin susceptibility at that point. Let me again say that other in vitro susceptibilities are not helpful even at this juncture. If someone has macrolide-resistant MAC lung disease, then they go to a completely different part of the decision tree than if they are refractory but remain macrolide susceptible. For those just tuning in, you're listening to Deep Breaths, updates from chest on ReachMD. I'm Dr. Tim Aximet, and today I'm speaking with nurse practitioner Amy Levenger and Dr. David Griffith about diagnosing patients with non-tuberculous mycobacterial lung disease. Dr. Griffith, now that we have a better idea as to why it can be difficult to diagnose MAC lung disease, and the various types of MAC lung diseases, can you walk us through what diagnostic tools are available that can help us make a timely diagnosis? Well, the critical diagnostic tool is the, the clinician's suspicion about the diagnosis and then his, his or her awareness that a patient is not responding appropriately to guidelines-based therapy. And as everyone knows, uh, MAC lung disease is a frustrating process where even in the most experienced hands, response to initial uh, therapy is at best in the 80-85% range. So we know just starting out that at least 15-20% to 20% of our patients are going to fall into that category of refractory MAC lung disease. So I, I, I would only stress that once these patients are diagnosed, once they are put on therapy, it is as important as the decision-making process during the evaluation of initial therapy for patients to do careful follow-up of, of patients with uh, frequent monitoring of sputum, appropriate monitoring of radiographs to determine if they are responding appropriately to, to therapy. And uh, really that close clinical follow-up is, uh, is absolutely essential. Excellent. And once a patient is diagnosed then with NTM lung disease, Ms. Levenger, what comorbidities should we be on the lookout for? So it is important to recognize and address the underlying comorbidities for patients with NTM lung disease. The most common comorbidity of NTM lung disease is bronchiectasis. And bronchiectasis may go undiagnosed for many months or even years in some of these patients. And this could be often associated with repeated episodes of lung infections, which then could ultimately lead to um, a loss of lung function over time. This is also why some patients, like we mentioned earlier, do have relief when they do get to a clinician who is able to identify bronchiectasis as well as the NTM lung disease. 
going um, further along with that is when a patient is diagnosed with the NTM lung disease, it's important to complete a full workup as there can be many multiple conditions and comorbidities making um, their symptoms or contributing to some of their radio radiologic findings on the chest CT scans. For example, patients should undergo a full GI workup to evaluate if they may have any GERD, um, esophageal disease, or silent aspiration. Some tests that the GI doctor may perform include an esophagram, a motility study, and impedance or Bravo testing. In addition, patients may undergo a swallow study evaluation that could be beneficial as well. Um, and then if there's anything abnormal, patients could then undergo swallow um, therapy. Further, patients may benefit from an ENT evaluation for possible chronic sinus disease that could be contributing and or worsening to their symptoms and radiologic findings. These are some great thoughts on how we can provide the very best care for our patients and really make sure that we're doing what uh, patients uh, need and what patients are asking us for. And before we wrap up, I'd like to open up the floor to you both to see if you have any final takeaways on NTM lung disease. Dr. Griffith, let's start with you. Tim, I think there are several uh, aspects of MAC lung disease that Amy and I have discussed that deserve emphasis. The first is the importance of identifying and managing bronchiectasis. I think bronchiectasis is as mysterious for patients as MAC lung disease, and that there is a lack of understanding in the medical community about bronchiectasis just in, in general. So uh, as Amy pointed out, patients are relieved when uh, they are told about MAC lung disease. I think they are equally relieved when they learn about bronchiectasis and ways to manage it. I also think it's very important to emphasize following uh, guidelines for therapy. Certainly they are imperfect and treatment success rates, even in the best of hands, are only 80 to 85%. But nevertheless, following those guidelines helps avoid the emergence of macrolide resistance, which is probably the worst possible outcome uh, for patients on therapy. And as we discussed, it is important to follow patients closely so that you can identify those who meet criteria for refractory MAC lung disease. Once a patient is uh, labeled as refractory MAC lung disease, there are other treatment options and another treatment algorithm that can be followed. Excellent. And Ms. Levinger, any other takeaways you'd like to share? I would just like to add that, you know, when these patients do come in for initial diagnosis and evaluation, I think we've made it clear that there are some patients that have gone undiagnosed for months to even years. So I think um, Dr. Griffith noted it too, that education here is key, not only to the diagnosis and the evaluation, but um, education on how they can better themselves, education on what treatment and the guidelines would look like once everything is diagnosed and providing them with hope. Well, that unfortunately brings us to the end of today's program. But for more resources on NTM lung disease, as well as a checklist for evaluating patients, please go to the Chess Foundation website. I'd like to thank Dr. David Griffith, nurse practitioner Amy Levinger, for joining me to talk about non-tuberculous mycobacterial lung disease. Ms. Levinger, Dr. Griffith, 
It was great having you both on the program. Thank you. Thanks, Tim. This episode of Deep Breaths, Updates from Chest, was produced in partnership with the American College of Chest Physicians and sponsored by InsMed Incorporated. For more resources on this topic, visit chestfoundation.org slash NTM. And to access other episodes of this series, visit reachmd.com slash chest, where you can be part of the knowledge. Thank you for listening.